everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I am talking with Dr. Bridget Sweet. Dr. Sweet is an associate professor of music education at the University of Illinois, and in this episode we talk about her life and her experiences, and we also talk about her research in voice change, changing voice, adolescence, and gender identity, and all those things that come with it. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this interview and this episode. Please let us know what you think. Please like and share with your friends, and I will see you next Monday. Hello, my name is Bridget Sweet, and I am Associate Professor of Music Education at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois. Woohoo! There I am. So <laughs> Great. So what got you started in music in the first place? It's such a funny question because when I was younger, I started piano lessons, you know, at third grade, and I uh, loved to sing, and I was always putting on shows and we would go to people's houses and my parents would make us, my sister and I promised to not put on any shows and we would promise. And then the next thing we knew we were organizing some sort of show for all the parents later in the evening. So I've just always loved to sing and to play and be cheesy. But I always thought at an early age, I would be a teacher. And that was kind of it. Like I just, yeah. you know, I was going to be a teacher. And, but I'd, I had always thought of my music as a hobby and something that I did because I just really loved it. I'd never thought of it as being something that I was, I guess, good enough to do long term. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'd, I'd always thought of my sister is an artist and, you know, so I, I'd always, so we grew up in this house steeped with arts. I just really thought that I was probably going to end up as an art teacher. And then when I was in high school, one day, I think my junior year, I came into choir and my teacher said to me, so what are you thinking about doing for school? And I said, well, I'm thinking definitely education. I'm thinking art ed. And she said, well, what about music ed? And it was just kind of like a light switch was flipped. And I said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And so I went home that day and I said to my mom, I'm going to major in music education. She was like, okay. And then that was it. (laughs) So funny. And 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 that was it. (laughs) That's so weird because like you may, from your perception and like, you know, what most people, that kind of path that they take, that may seem like abnormal, but it's very similar to mine. Like it really, similar. yeah. Like I always wanted to be a teacher when I was little or an author. Like I really like to write too. Like I used to write my own little stories. I, I feel like I just wanted to be a teacher because that was like the only profession that I really knew. Like we were around teachers all the time at school. And my dad's an art teacher. And so I was kind of debating in high school between art and music. Like I was in APR and AP music theory. And I was like in all band all the time. Cause that was like my jam, but I was like really 50, 50 for a while until I decided on music. But like, even when I was applying to undergrad programs, um, some of the programs I applied to, I applied to some schools for both um, art and music. So I was very in between. So that's, that's very similar. So funny. Yeah. Isn't that funny? That's so cool. (laughs) 
And I was like sitting there just like nodding my head like, yeah, that, that sounds like me. Yeah. I can remember when I was a kid, it, my elementary school would have like old textbooks they would just donate. And my sister and I would always grab like the teacher's edition and the student's edition. And we would always play school. Yeah. And do that. So just, it was, it was just one of those things where I just always knew I'd end up teaching. Yeah. So we kind of touched on it a little bit, but what were your musical experiences like growing up in your school programs and things like that? In my school programs, so I grew up in a house where my my mom loves to sing, my dad played music all the time on like his record players and things like that. And so at home, it was just kind of, we always grew up in art and music and like no athletics along those lines. And at school, Mr. Deschamps in my elementary program uh, was an amazing music teacher and he was also my piano teacher when I started in third grade and I just remember it was my favorite he just was energetic and enthusiastic actually he's he is in his 90s now and during he's for COVID he's living in in the south with his son right now but he's on Facebook and he's just an amazing person still and it's really fun to still have him in your in my life and um and then I went uh into middle school and worked with just just some really great people. My Marilyn Elena was my middle school and high school piano teacher and so supportive and and just through middle and high school just had worked with some amazing people. It's interesting to look back on kind of those experiences where I am now and see how each of them somehow formed or shaped or influenced some part of me as a music educator and yeah. seeing myself as kind of having different parts from each of them infused you know, in my own style, but I feel very fortunate that I, I felt very supported uh, and encouraged at all stages of the game. My sister, not so much, had some really negative experiences, and it's been fascinating because some of the experiences that I had that drew me to end up doing what I'm doing are some, she was treated very differently and is do, not doing music for those reasons, so it's wow. been interesting to kind of watch us go through the same experiences and and yeah, one of us was encouraged and the other one was really squished out. So it's, that's something too that I, I remember very clearly and tell my students about that, you know, how, the power that we have and the influence that we have as music educators is mighty. And with great power comes great responsibility, yeah. as uh, Voltaire said, but we all know from the Spider-Man movies. And, um, <laughs> you know, but that, you know, so I feel fortunate, but I also know that my experiences were not everyone's experiences in those same settings. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, yeah, my musical experiences, for the most part, were pretty positive. I didn't always have the best relationship with my high school band director. Just some of the things that, you know, how he chose to run rehearsal and things, I didn't quite agree with philosophically. That's me putting it nicely. Um, <laughs> but um, for the most part, they were very positive. But like my my youngest brother, for example, is in band, but it was never something that he was super into. And he, he's had a considerable amount of negative experiences as well. So yeah, it's it all depends on, you know, the personality of the student and, you know, what they're pursuing, what their interests are. And like, it's, it's hard because some teachers are willing to adapt in that way and really provide instruction to the individual. And then some teachers teach the same way to every single kid and a lot of kids struggle in that environment if, if that is done, you know. And sometimes the personality, I think my, 
my, I'm very close to my sister and I adore her to pieces. And um, she's an amazing artist. Her name's Kate Cosgrove. Check out her stuff. But, uh, you know, <laughs> we, are, we also have very different personalities. And I'm, she tends to be more of an introvert and I am not. And I think that my teacher expected her to be like me and she wasn't. And yeah, which is good. that's her own person. I think that 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 was part of the where the animosity came from, which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's so weird how birth order affects things. And when you have the same teacher as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's the general expectation that every sibling is going to be the same coming through. And that's definitely not the case for sure. Mm hmm. So let's fast forward a little bit. You obviously went to school to be a music teacher. So can you talk a little bit about what your collegiate experiences were like? I mean, you don't have to talk about everything right away, or you can just delve into, you know, all three of your degrees if you'd like. You know, it was, it's, been, it's been an interesting ride. My undergrad program, it's interesting too, like hindsight is twenty twenty, And, you know, it's an undergrad at the moment I had... I felt like everything was all hunky-dory, but I look back on that, and I had some teachers that that were not very supportive, and kind of had some, I had an experience as an undergrad, so one of my professors was injured in the course of the semester and unable to teach us for the rest of the semester, so they filled it with substitute people, and we were out at this point, this is a semester before I was supposed to student teach, and we were out in the field working with high school students, and you know, I was in the classroom and I was working with this choir and I just didn't know when to quit. Just, you know, I just could keep, you know, beating the dead horse kind of a thing. And <laughs> yeah, and I think the students, it all fell apart, it got really bad and I lost the students. And so then the next time I came in, I was really tentative. And for each of these experiences, there was a different professor that was observing our class because they had piecemealed it together. Does that make sense? Piecemealed yeah, the, yeah. Okay. So, so professor one, was there for the first lesson that didn't go well. Professor two came in for the second and saw me tentative when I was working with this choir again because I had gone so poorly the time before. And, and after the lesson, which I thought really, really well, said, I'd really love to speak with you in my office. And so she called me into her office and said to me, I think that teaching's not for you. I think that you need to consider a different degree program and you should cancel your student teaching next semester and you should spend the next year observing strong female role models and find something else to do because this is not for you. Wow. And this was like right before I student taught and I was oh my god devastated and freaking out and I called my mother and my my mother was so mad and said don't you dare listen don't you dare you're not changing a thing she doesn't know what she's talking about. You're going to, you're going to stay to the plan. You're going to student teach. You're going to get this degree because you do belong to be there. You do have a voice. And, and so I think, you know, that, that is kind of how I sum up my undergrad, unfortunately, <laughs> is yeah. that kind of looking back and recognizing that in a lot of, and there were a lot of other things that happened to me along the way too, where I feel like I just... I got beat down a lot. And, and so I'm really, this whole idea of like power and influence that we have over our students and, and how, you know, I was, I looked at this person as someone who knew what they were talking about, you know, if, but if I had listened, I would, it would have completely changed the course of my life. Yeah. And I didn't. And I went on to student teach and I had a wonderful experience. And then I, you know, got a job and then I 
did my master's and I, you know, and I, and, you know, kind of fast forward. So that, however, I think has some, it lit a fire in me to mm-hmm. empower other people and all, especially other women in what yeah. we do because of the, that experience really, I think I can credit that experience as horrible as it was and as kind of still raw as it feels sometimes, credit that for some of the drive that I have today to just kind of be like, step, you know, here, you know, the whole thing, like, hold my beer, here I go. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm going to roar forward. So it's interesting because I don't think I could see myself doing anything else. And so I went on and taught middle school for about 10 years. And in the process of that, did my, did my summer master's degree at Michigan State and, and then along the way decided like I just wanted to learn more so I started a doctorate because I just wanted to learn more I had no intention of teaching college mm-hmm. and I got into my first class as a PhD student and I lived 20 minutes from Michigan State so that was it worked really well but also the they had a completely new faculty between my master's and my PhD too so that was exciting to it was kind of the same place but not yeah and I just got into that first class and I thought oh my gosh I could just see how I could be advocates for an advocate for adolescents in ways that I couldn't if I stayed at the middle school because I figured I had about probably a thousand students in the course of my middle school, official middle school teaching career, you know, and if I could get 15 teachers excited about working with adolescents, that could be potentially 15,000 adolescents whose lives I can make yeah. a little bit more positive. And so I could see the ripple effects in a different way and ultimately did decide to, to go off to teach college and so now I taught two years at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, and now I started at Illinois in 2010. So now I've actually been teaching college longer than I taught middle school, which is kind of a strange thing. But, wow. um, but I, one of the things I love about my job is that I, I work with middle and high school choirs a lot. I get invited to do some very wonderful choirs in all states and doing a lot of these workshops and so forth. And I, I think that that's really important because I don't have a college choir and I don't want a college choir. I like working with adolescents, but I never want to be teaching about teaching adolescents and never actually ever working with them because that would make yeah. me such a hypocrite. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and those kids do not care what degrees I have. They do not care who I am. They don't, you know, I show up and they're like, dance lady, let's see what you can do. And I, I think it's, <laughs> it keeps me humble. And, you know, and I have experiences where students just don't want to work with me. And so it's really good for me to remember what it's really like to work with, with live students. And, and then I can take that right back into my classroom with my own students. Yeah. So that was a lot of just very useful information. And I'm sitting here and I'm like processing it. I'm like writing down things. I'm like, Oh, we need to mention that we need to talk about this. So the first thing you were talking about, like the influence of that a teacher has, and I feel like in our profession and in music schools, I feel like there's this, uh, this power divide between professor and student and the fact that in music it's so personable that the impact of like what one person says to you can have you know such a ripple effect on your life and so I was thinking about what happened to you right before you student taught and I was like oh my god right like just taking advantage of that very vulnerable stage being like hey I don't think you should do this anymore (laughs) And, and just and it made me think of like how impactful even me as like a teacher in the conversations that I have with my students about like important things to them and like watching your language and like 
how you approach things with a student because that can have a lasting effect. Like you in your life now are still remembering that moment and that exact person and exactly what they said to you. So that's what it resonated with me. I was just sitting there and I was like, whew, yeah, because music is just so personable. It's amazing. And I think, you know, and I, I think back to that conversation and I, I'm guessing, I'm guessing in hindsight that this person probably had no idea as to the impact of their, of their words. I don't know. I would like to think that they, they weren't, I don't know. I don't know what to think. And I, I, I'm sure this person would never remember me. And I, and I'm sure that if I, being the kind of person I am, I would never call them up and be like, do you remember this that you said oh, yeah, this to yeah. me? And you know, this is one of the worst moments of my life. And but it, it is interesting to me to think about about this a lot. And yeah, and wonder also like what other things did this person say to other people, and and exactly. how might that have affected other people? So I'm I yeah. feel very fortunate that my mom understood me at the core and um and really encouraged me the way that she did. Yeah, walked me off the ledge. And when you were talking about your decision to become a teacher educator and go into higher ed and those things, I, it made me think back to, I interviewed Alice Hamill for a previous episode and I love her. She's just amazing. And she, she said the same thing in kind of, kind of a different way, but it was, it was the same concept of, she knew that she could have an impact on so many more kids by teaching teachers, you know, the things that she has learned. And yeah, when you were talking about that, I just, I just thought of that interview and, and her reasoning behind going into higher ed was to impact even more kids because that's what she was all about. And she is a person that still actively works with kids and teaches and that sort of thing. So I think that's really great. And you mentioned the whole thing about being a person who's teaching people how to teach and you're making sure you're actively working with kids yourself. And I think that's <laughs> so important because I don't want to be like too big for my britches here because I'm just a master student, but I feel like that's a huge. No, no, no. There's no just. There's no just. Right. Oh, this is my <laughs> podcast, so um, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but like, I think that is a huge hole in higher ed and music education programs is that there are professors there that are teaching teachers how to teach, but haven't taught themselves in like 30 plus years, and then they're like, "You need to do this and do that," and I'm like, "You haven't taught since 1985." Um, kids aren't like that anymore. You know what I mean though? And it's, it's like weird. It's hypocritical to say like, Hey, this is how you're supposed to do it when you're not actually doing it yourself or, um, when it's been so long since you have. So I, I, I thought of that and I was like, yes, finally someone agrees with me. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's good too, for my students when, you know, when I have an event and typically in one semester or the other, I'm teaching some sort of class where we talk about working with choirs. And so I try to share like, well, these are the, the parameters that they gave me for like picking repertoire. And so mm -hmm. I just want you to see like what, how, I, how I'm making the choices that I'm making and, and what I'm going with and why I'm choosing this. And, and I talk about like how I have to earn their trust in such a short amount of time and so how I go about that and and so you know and then I'll report back after the fact and sometimes I've worked with groups where there'll be like one kid who just was not going to work with me and so we have we have those conversations too about I want them to see that I that see me as in that teacher light also and see kind of the decisions and choices that I'm making and going yeah. through that process because I think that's important and I also think that at some point they're going to be called upon to do clinics and be you know leading things and I want them to to think about that already ahead of time like how do I form trust with these kids how do I give feedback 
how do I keep my ears calibrated so that if I'm working with a, a middle school choir that I'm not thinking that they should sound like a high school group or different mm -hmm. things like that. So I try to use it as a teaching moment also. Yeah, and you were, you were discussing how you go out and you do workshops at various places and things like that. And that's, that's how we met. You came and did a workshop at Baldwin Wallace. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. And we, it was all about, you know, working with adolescents, working with middle schoolers, changing voice, things that had to do with gender identity and stuff like that. So can you talk a little bit about your research when it comes to adolescents and changing voice? Sure. So one of the things over the course of my master's degree and into my PhD and beyond is that I've gotten interested in the idea of voice change. And there's lots and lots out there about male voice change. And, and kind of what I had found over the years was there are publications about uh, classifications of female voices, but nothing about really about voice change. I know Lynn Gackle is, she's the groundbreaker in that area and her book is wonderful. It's largely anecdotal and so I was I noticed that when I was doing I was doing a chapter for an Oxford handbook on qualitative research in music education. I was asked to do the one about choral, which meant that I went back and looked at all of the qualitative research that had to do with choral in the United States since the beginning of qualitative research began, which really is was like the late 80s. Not that there's not that many things. Yeah. And so what I found was, again, like all this stuff about male voices and just nothing about female voice change. And I stumbled upon an article that Patrick Freer wrote, and which is great. His work is really important. But it was interesting because he talked about how he relayed a conversation in his article and said, I was at this conference and we were talking about clearly the needs of male singers are not being met because of the lack of numbers in our choirs. And I read that comment and immediately the inverse struck me. And I said, well, wait a minute. It, just because there's lots of females doesn't mean that we're meeting their needs. And yeah. as me, I am the classical case of an adolescent alto. My voice changed when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, and so I lost my upper range. I had a good mm -hmm. ear because I played piano. So I got put on alto, and then I just never left. So as, you know, as an adult even, I have a lot of baggage that I carry around with me because of that and um, fear <laughs> of singing and <laughs> a lot of personal stories about my voice. But um, you know, it just all of a sudden lit this fire me to bring some attention or at least to the validate the experiences that female voices go through. So I got a creative research award grant from the University of Illinois and I went to Durham School of the Arts in, in um, North Carolina where I knew the teachers there and I knew that they were really aware of male voice change and they also honored female voice change. And so I did a year long study and went back three different times and interviewed and did some journaling with these students, sixth grade through 12th grade, female students, just to validate because Lynn's, Lynn Gackle's work was, was largely anecdotal. I just needed something that followed research protocol that we could point to and say, here, this is a peer reviewed research protocol followed study that we can point to that says that this is actually a real thing and not just yeah. anecdotal. Yeah. And so that kind of started the whole snowball down the hill. And then I did a follow-up study where, again, I found a number of studies where people talked to men as adults looking back on their adolescent voice change experiences, but no one had talked to women. And again, this is all assigned at birth female, I should say that. And so I did uh, a study like that with college women and had them talk about their singing experiences since age 11. And then my uh, 
friend and colleague, Elizabeth Parker, who is at Temple University, and I did another study about vocal identity development and talked to all of these uh, women in college choirs, both at two different significantly big universe, research one universities. And so anyways, that's kind of, it just kind of kept going and going and going. And then I came out with a new book this uh, last year called Thinking Outside the Voice Box, Adolescent Voice Change in Music Education. And one of the things that I'm really now per trying to promote is that voice change is such a holistic experience for students. And this yeah. could be upper elementary, middle school and high school. And for me, what I have found from doing this work is that, you know, any, like, let's think about these Facebook groups of teachers, anybody that ever posts anything about like, oh, I'm working with, you know, changing voices, what should I know? And people will say, 1977, John Cooksey stages of voice change, 1991, Lynn Gackle stages of female voice change, and now you're great to go. And what I'm saying is like, there is so much more than just classifying a kid and putting them into like a framework yeah. with regards to helping them navigate that experience. And that it's really, it really got under my skin. And I thought, I want to, I want to tell people this. So that was what the second book is. It's about, it's about, it's not about warm-ups. It's not about picking rep. It's about understanding the creature of the adolescent and what voice change looks like from physiological standpoint, from cognitive, from emotional. I talk about brain development. I talk about I talk about society and how portrayals in pop culture of voice change, we are steeped mm -hmm. in those. So it's automatically mm -hmm. stigmatized as a negative thing before for teachers and students before they even get there. Yeah. I talk about the history of choral music education and the things that we keep repeating and repeating and repeating that can, I can point back to 1885. We're talking about ideas that started in 1885. And, in, and then I bring in a lot of my new research and saying like, let's look at some new ways to think about this. So the voice change piece has evolved and I feel like it's evolved into a conversation now that some people that are more traditional aren't very comfortable with having. And I get a lot into the anatomy and physiology of things instead of just worrying about voice classifications and choosing repertoire. I think mm -hmm. you can't, you shouldn't even be doing that until you really understand the experiences that your students are going through. So this all really goes back to the core of all that I believe in is just empowering people, empowering adolescents, empowering teachers. Yeah, and I, I find your work so fascinating. Like, I'm a band person through and through. I was in band all the way through school, was terrified to sing, never was in <laughs> choir. Strings freaked me out. And, and then I went to BW where I had to do learn everything, right? Like, I had choral methods and I had to learn strings and I had to do all these things that were completely outside my comfort zone. But it was just so fascinating to learn about things because from my perspective and from this perspective of um, my peers in school, this idea of SATB and, you know, you're assigned your voice part in middle school and that's where you stay. And, and then I, you know, was learning all these things in choral methods and we were putting, you know, we were talking about putting middle school boys in soprano and alto and girls on like a tenor part and mixing it all up. And it was so weird to me to disassociate voice parts <laughs> from gender because I was sitting there like, wait a minute, this, wait, what? You can do that? Because I don't know why there's just like weird implied rule that like women have to sing soprano alto, men have mm -hmm. to sing tenor bass and not just, hey, can the kids sing those notes or not in this moment? And the fact that it's, it, it has to be such a permanent assignment and there's no fluidity, you know, because like a middle schooler, 
hey, they might be able to sing this voice part now, but in a month, if their voice is changing, they may be on a completely different voice part. You can't just like have them stay there, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's like yes. permanence all the time. You know, and it's interesting because two things, we wouldn't ever do that with athletics. Like, yeah. so I'm, I grew up on music and art, my husband and no sports, my husband grew up all sports and no music and art. And so it's been a really interesting journey that we've been on together. And so he will put it in a sports context for me. And he'll say, you know, like, it's like looking at a seventh grader and assigning them to be a second baseman for the rest of their life. And like yeah. nobody would do that. Or like, you're going to be a point guard. People would say that's asinine because they're not done physically growing, but we do this to the singers you know, and they still have about 20 years of vocal growth and heftiness to gain in their instrument, yet we're pigeonholing them, which then leads to a lot of psychological and emotional ramifications. And, you know, and when I work with our summer, we have a summer camp at the University of Illinois called ISYM, Illinois Summer Youth Music. And that is a wonderful time for me to work with a the middle level choir for a week. I get these students for a week and we start on a Sunday and then the following Saturday, they live in residence and do a bunch of other stuff when there's not a pandemic going on. And then <laughs> there's a concert at the, the next weekend on Saturday. And I always try to have at least one or two of the songs where I have everybody sing everything. And then I, <gasps> I let them choose which part they want to sing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh and, <laughs> and watching their faces, they're like, really? Uh, yeah. And, the, and so they'll try. Can I, can I try that part? I've always wanted to try. Yeah. So they just, the only rules we have to balance the volume, Yeah. you know, and they're in different octaves. I don't care. And, uh, and it's so fun to watch them try out the different parts and feel empowered to do that. Because, you know, the research that I've done, unfortunately, my, my second study in the study I did with my colleague, Elizabeth Parker, we, in two separate studies, we found that people were identifying their relationship with their choral director as like the choir teacher knows all. Yep. They put me on this voice part so they know what's best for me. I will self-sacrifice myself for the larger whole because I don't want to be the person that rocks the boat in my choir. I don't want to go against what the professional teacher says. Even if it's physically painful, we talked to people who are singing like first soprano and it was physically painful, but they would not speak up because they didn't want to create any issues. So yep. like this power dynamic is huge. huge. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I feel like a lot of choir teachers are afraid to break tradition in that way, you know, yes. because of what's traditionally done. And I'm sitting there like, well, what is, what is tradition? Is it positively impacting your students or is it negatively impacting your students? And if it's negatively impacting your students, why are you still doing it? Right. <laughs> why? Right. If we, ran, if we ran the world, man. Right. Right. And, and I'm sitting there. It's the same thing. I kind of equate this with uh, uniforms for ensembles. Right. And I, you know, when I was growing up and in high school, all the girls had to wear dresses. All the boys had to wear tuxes. And and, you know, I am a cisgender woman, but I'm sitting there like, so what if you're not? Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? And for me, just function wise, like I'm a trumpet player. I could not put mutes on my lap wearing this big old dress or just roll off my dress and land on the floor. And I'm like, this function, it just doesn't work. And so I was talking to my kids about it last year and I'm standing there and I said, well, I plan on wearing pants when I conduct. So you can wear whatever you want. Awesome. <laughs> I don't care what you wear. As long as it's black and it's professional, I don't care. So. <laughs> You know, I was like, if you want to wear a dress, wear a dress. If you want to wear pants, wear pants. And it, it doesn't matter. Like, what, what is tradition in that sense? I'm sorry. The people that are coming to my concerts are parents that are there to see their kids. 
Right. You know, and I think there's a lot of, it boils down to philosophy too. And yeah. it boils down to, to that a lot and how we've been raised and all those sorts of conversations. But yeah, I, I agree. I think if we keep doing things the way that they have been doing them for years and years, we're going to go extinct. Like this yeah. is yeah. not an option. I talk about that a lot and I'm like, and our, our world is moving in such a direction that I feel like music is just very much dragging its feet sometimes, this classical con- tradition. It's like all these weights are being pulling us backwards and we're like struggling to push against the grain and we're not keeping up, right? Like we will go extinct if we don't. That's so true. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the conversations that I, I get to have with my students that were not conversations that were had with me. I mean, this week in my, in my class, I teach a class called Music and Adolescence, we had a whole conversation about working with trans students and, and supporting LGBTQ youth in our music programs and honoring all of that encompasses working with students. And it was interesting because my students asked me, well, when you were teaching, did you have this experience? And I said, when I was teaching, nobody talked about this. Like yeah. we, do you know, you will love this, Cassidy. So when I was in my methods classes as an undergrad, I'll never forget, we went to go visit a school to see how he did things. And we had, we had an hour long conversation about professionalism before we went because this teacher had a ponytail. Are you serious? Think back on that. I mean, that was shocking. And people were like, is that professional? Is it not? Is that appropriate? Is that not? Like a ponytail. And I think about my student teachers that go out with like piercings and neck tattoos mm-hmm. and are like openly trans. And, you know, it just, I just, the world has changed so quickly, so fast. And I'm, I'm appreciative that I work at a place where we can have these conversations and, and generally they go pretty well, but I kind of wish sometimes my students knew how fortunate they were to be able to have these conversations because I, this was nothing we ever broached ever in any of my teacher education. Yeah. And I mean, obviously I'm pretty young and I'm just, you know, starting out in the field, but I, I even noticed that when I'm having conversation with some of the older colleagues in my district and like what they've experienced and those sorts of things. And then my, my counterpart in my building who teaches the other ensembles and band, he, his hair is longer than mine. So. <laughs> right. I had a, one of our master's students a couple of years ago, he had the most beautiful long hair and um, another one of the master's students would braid it different ways. And I mean, we had so much fun with that. And I just, you know, I just never, I just like the fact that not everywhere, but generally people are, it's more accepted that people can be themselves. And I, I do appreciate that. But again, this, if we don't start changing the culture of the of the profession in more foundational and profound ways. Yeah, it's, it's going to get problematic. So you had mentioned, you were talking about in some of your classes, having these conversations about supporting trans and LGBTQ youth. So do you have any advice for current teachers in the field who have students with differing gender identities when it comes to their changing voices and working with them in a choir setting? That's a great question. Well, I think that one of the most important things that you can do is have an open conversation with your student. It was interesting. We had a, there was a panel panel presentation at one of our state conferences a couple of years ago, and it was a group of high school students who identified in all sorts of different ways. And 
the room was full of teachers and they kept asking these questions of the students. Well, I have this student who blah, 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 blah. And the high school student said, have you talked to your student? And the teacher said, no. And they said, you should talk to your student. And so the next person raised their hand and they said, I have a student who identifies as blah, 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 blah. And what, what should I do? And the panel said, have you talked to your student? And they said, no. And they said, you should go talk to your student. And I just remember sitting there and being very struck by how that was pretty much how the whole event went. And so I think that teachers are nervous about this conversation, but I think it can be just something as, as like basic as, I want to be as supportive to you as possible. So I would love to talk about, you know, your voice and how I can support you in this setting. And so let me know when would be a good time. And I think just kind of like opening the door. And I think it's important too for the teachers to to also remain, you know, there's, I think there's needs to be humility about this too, especially if this is something that not encountered already. If, you know, if you're, if you're a cis gender heterosexual person and this is new to you, that's okay. You know, just, yeah. you know, don't try to act like somebody you're not and, you know, just be as supportive as possible and understand that you'll make mistakes. And I have, my, my trans students are wonderful about correcting me gently. If I get pronouns wrong, just send me a little message and say, just a friendly reminder. And, and I, I appreciate that. And I, I try do the best I can, but I know I'm not perfect. And, but I, they, they see the efforts as genuine and sincere. And I think that that is so important for our students. With regards to like vocal health, I think that's where it's really important to talk to your student and you might need to make some sort of negotiations as far as what, how you can honor identity, but also maintain healthy voice. Yeah. Because our job is to make sure too that we that we promote healthy vocal habits and, and training. And we don't want our students to be developing nodes. We don't want to be having them sing in an octave or register that is going to lead to long-term problems. And I understand that, you know, sometimes sometimes there's nothing that can be done to like some students are, you know, will do hormone therapy and some students that's not an option or they don't want yeah. to do that. So I think that having those conversations is really important. One thing that I try to encourage people to think about is if you have students that identify as a gender that doesn't necessarily align with where their voice is, you know, if you do follow the practice of occasionally picking a song and having mixed parts on all of the lines when having people singing things up and down the octaves and and playing with arrangements of pieces those are nice spaces for students who are gender expansive to sing and not feel like they're being placed on a voice part specifically that is problematic for them. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of thinking if, if you're having, you know, and I think I understand that this can't be the case for all pieces, but perhaps there are things that, that can be done like singing if you're if your voice is more treble oriented, maybe tenor would be the a good place to start so that it's closer and maybe there can be some agreement about flipping octaves on notes that are too low or something, just so that again that vocal health is balanced as well as like an identity navigation. And, but I think again, if you can think about like approaching your choir and your repertoire in ways that aren't so following voice parts as they traditionally yeah. have been, that can, those can be really nice empowering moments and, and for students. So that would be where I would begin. Yeah. I also think too, one of the things I would really recommend is, and this goes for 
with music uh, that, that's written by people of color, there's music written by trans musicians and people who are very openly supportive of the LGBTQ community. Like Mari Valverde is um, a trans woman and is getting a lot of attention for the work that she's doing in, in the choral composition world. And, you know, bringing in pieces that are done by all different kinds of composers, but not in a token way, like yeah. making these parts of conversations and making this is just really typical practice. And we're gonna learn about who these people are while we learn their music. And, and if you're doing this with, the majority of the composers and the majority of the pieces, then you're showing students a broader perspective of the of the choral world. And it's not just like, okay, now it's time for the black composer. Now it's time for the gay composer kind of a thing. But like, we need to understand who the composers are and we need to understand their stories and the, who, the, who wrote the text and like what their stories are and where these pieces come from. And I think that is a nice way too, that you can pull in music by LGBTQ community and, and having like Spotify playlists for your classes and having yeah. like different kinds of playlists. You can have one that is, you know, trans musician. Like there's a whole bunch of different sorts of ways that you can make resources available to your students and have conversations that, that show that you're supportive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I loved your point about making sure that it's not tokenism either, because the amount of and I'm just going to speak from an instrumental perspective, but the amount of concert seasons that I see programmed um, for school ensembles and it's like all white composers until like February and then they're like, okay, <laughs> Black History Month, now we're going to mm -hmm. let the people of color shine and then now we're going to go back to white people again. And the amount yes. of times that happens and I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I'm doing... I'm doing a study with my colleague, Elizabeth Parker, where we are looking at a high school and that's actually near one of the places that has been really impacted by George Floyd's murder and gone back and done some follow-up interviews by one with one of the, um, with some of the students that we talked to in, in 2018. We did the original data collection and then, you know, the pandemic hit and then there's been all of this um, discussion of racism in America. And so we thought it seemed appropriate, especially as to where the school's located. We go back and follow up with some of the students and talk to them about these ideas of race and safety in, in within their music programs. And one of them said, you know, I appreciated the fact that like the teachers would bring in pieces that were done by women or pieces that were done by black composers, but it wasn't like we had any sort of immersive experience with them. It was like, now let's get this piece out because now we've got the one, we can check that off the box and then check off the box and now move forward. And, and these were students of color that we were talk, talking to and they said, you know, we really, I really would have liked it to have been more than just this, okay, we, yep, we're inclusive because we have this piece of, that's just written by a black composer. Piece. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, instead, yeah, yeah. Of it, instead of like making that an integral, just part of the conversations and this, and the considerations of the program overall and so forth. Yeah. And circling back to what you were talking about with trans students and gender expression and that sort of thing. And you honed in on the point of, after you were talking about that conference session about, well, did you talk to them? <laughs> and, I, and I feel like that, that is the case. I feel like as, you know, people that are cisgender, heterosexual people, oftentimes, I'm going to say we, because that is me, we're almost overly cautious to a point where we're afraid to talk to people or afraid that we're going to offend somebody or afraid that we're going to use the wrong language or, you know, and, and it comes to a point where then we close ourselves off and we don't have those conversations. And one of the things that I try to do with my students is I have every student identify their pronouns at the beginning of the year. And that way I know how they identify themselves because we can't know by just looking at somebody. And 
also it, it makes it so that, you know, students don't feel um, super ostracized if they are identifying as trans because everybody's having to do it. And it's not in a point where like I make them stand up and say their pronouns. I have them like fill out like a little get to know you thing that I read. Um, so if it's a person that's, you know, not super open or out, but they want to let me know, then they're able to do that in, in that sort of capacity. And I actually recently had one of my students come out to me as trans. They are now going by he, him pronouns. So, and that was like as of two days ago. So um, one of my students recently came out to me in that way. And that was the first time I've had that happen. And I'm the only person that knows. A student has not told any of their teachers, their friends, or their family yet. And so wow. for, for me, that was so impactful and such a weight on me because I just realized how important that is to someone who is coming out because I've never had to experience that before. And what a struggle that is for a teenager or an adolescent to have to go through that and, you know, be in a traditional household and those sorts of things and really struggle with their identity. And so for me, that was just it was an affirmation in the sense that I know that I am forming good relationships with my students and maintaining them because that person trusted that information with me. Absolutely. Um, That's huge. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I was just getting all emotional. I was reading this email and I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's great. I'm so proud of you. But I'm like literally just like sitting there like crying. It's fine. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, and having the pronoun discussion right at the beginning even if at the beginning people aren't comfortable with that, you've set yeah. that stage and that I'm I'm willing to have that conversation. Yeah. I've actually found Zoom as much as I it's I'm struggling with the online teaching because I miss being in the same room with people. The one thing that I've really enjoyed this semester, uh, because I have a class of 41 students and this is the first time I've had them. So getting to know them is tricky. But mm -hmm. what I do is I've changed my name on the Zoom meeting and I put she, her, hers after my name. And then I let everybody change their name if they want to. And it's been really cool to see, some people don't, but the majority of the students are doing that. And I think that that's been nice too, because it's also a good reminder Reminder. So as people are referring to each other and talking to each other, there's fewer people that kind of slip into that binary mode. Yeah. Um, if, they, if they see that right in front of them too. I think that that's been really helpful. Yeah. And I, I started doing that on my social media in my bios, but when I realized that I was doing that and I started the school year with my like school email, I was like, why don't I just put it in my email signature too? So now it's in my email signature. It's like my name, like big bold. And then it says, she, her, hers right after it. So I'm hoping that um, more and more of my colleagues at school notice that and they start adding it to theirs as well. Because I feel like that would be a really cool thing for our school to do is to put our pronouns in there so students feel more comfortable talking to us in that regard. But hopefully that catches on. And I think that's one of the things when I talk to students about working with adolescents is that I try to stress upon them that they're in a period of their life of such transition Mm -hmm. And that includes gender identity and that includes self-expression in all sorts of different ways. And so just being really careful about, you know, making judgments, whatever that, you know, based on your own experiences or making assumptions based on what you see or, you know, and just kind of letting students, you know, like, well, what do you mean you're gay? I thought you were dating this, but, you know, like there's some people, really yeah. insensitive people out there. And so I think it's important to recognize that as they come in, it might be on a weekly basis, they identify as something completely different and that will include gender identity and sexuality and that is part of this process. And they're and so exploring often, that too, you know, it's not a definitive thing for them. They're trying to figure out who they are. 
Exactly. And I think so many people just think that 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 they're too young to be thinking about those sorts of things. And that's not the case at all. I mean, that they will know, figure out, who, and it's, I believe that it's fluid. So like who they are, even as adolescents might not be who they are when they're 30. So, you know, but just giving people that information too, I think is important. Yeah, that's so true. And I teach seventh through 12th grade. So I have a middle school band and a high school band and people are people for whatever reason, there's like this stigma around teaching middle school. And they're like, oh, you teach middle school? I feel so sorry for you. As if they're like, I don't know, the worst thing in the world. And <laughs> you reference, you're talking about adolescence, and you said the creature that is an adolescent. And that just like made me laugh a little bit. And so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit um, because I love teaching middle school as well. But what is your favorite part about teaching middle schoolers? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, so I think that adolescence especially like 12, 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds, I think that they are the most sincere creatures on the entire planet. Absolutely. I think, you know, they're not, and that was really the point of the first book that I wrote was to get people to see them as glass half full and not glass half empty. And I think, you know, it's not, they're not always making the prettiest sounds or smells or look the prettiest, not that pretty matters, but like, it's not always the most pleasant ex in experience with them as they explore this time of their lives. But man, it is about as sincere as you can possibly get. Like they are just figuring it out and their voices are their voices and how they look is how they look and their gross birds are theirs. And there's just, <laughs> there, it's just so wonderful how I love helping them navigate that transition from child to adult. I just, I just love it. I love helping them try to figure out who they are. It's different every day. Yeah. But I think <laughs> just, just the idea that like when they come to you, like they are, that it, they are about as sincere as anybody on this planet at that time of their lives as they try to figure out who they're going to be as they get older. And I, I really enjoy that and I, I think we have a lot of fun and we can be really silly because they're not they're not hardwired yet to be too cynical and they're not yeah um you know and they're still have this childlike awe with it. them and yeah <laughs> so I think that's I just whenever I see see students around that age it just makes my heart go pitter patter because I just think that they're really special and I like you I get very many negative comments about my work as a, you know, as an adolescent expert, you know, right. I don't know how you could do that or, oh gosh. And I've gotten to the point where I started writing letters to the editors of magazines and so forth when I see negative articles about adolescents, because I feel like they just need all of the positive vibes they can get. Yeah, they do. Uh, and they know, they know that people think poorly about their age group yeah. and what they're going through. And I feel like that just makes them struggle a little <sighs> bit more, you know? breaks my heart. It just breaks yeah. my heart. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was interesting when I was working on the second book and doing that chapter about voice change and how it's portrayed in pop culture. I, I did a transcription of the episode of the Brady Bunch and the Goldbergs and the Wonder Years where they go through voice change. And I was watching these episodes a lot and my, I have two small kids and my son and at the time was eight seven going into eight and he would come and stand and watch and he was like what's happening to that boy and you know when I it was interesting because I had to explain to him well like your voice will change but it's not it, this isn't what it really is going to be like like I had to tell him you know like it doesn't it's there this is just supposed to be kind of funny but it, it, there's actually some really wonderful things that come of this and and have to to make that as part of that conversation too because I don't want 
my children growing up in a world steeped with negativity towards adolescents because I don't want them to think that that's what they have to be like or what, how people will think of them and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I'm talking about how middle schoolers are so much themselves, but it's, it's, it's funny to me, it's that they're, they're so authentically themselves and so confused about themselves at the same time. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's such a weird conflict. Like they don't know who they are, but then they tell you like what it is without any filter at all whatsoever. And I'm like, yep, there's your personality coming through, but you right? just haven't realized it yet. That's the sincerity. To... Like they just wear that just there. There it is. Here yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And you were talking a little bit about, you know, it's currently going on in our country um, with social issues and things like that. And so I guess my, my last question for you is uh, what are your hopes for the future of music education with everything that's you know going on in our world and our country and all these conflicts, but all of these resolutions at the same time and whether they're enlightening or disappointing and things like that. And all of this is going on in the year 2020 because it's a lot. It is so much. Oh, you know, I, I would really just love for, I'd like our profession to slow down a little bit and think about the humanity of what we do more. Yeah. And think about the process of what we do more and, and the power of what we do more. And I think we've gotten into such a perfectionism, performance-oriented profession. And I know that there are people in the music ed profession that are working really hard to to change that and to bring, you know, new ways of doing technology and new ways of thinking about popular culture and, and pop music and those sorts of things, but it still feels very like this or that. And I feel like in our profession, we very quickly lose sight of what we actually are, which is music educators. And we get too caught up in being polished performers and conductors. And I think I think I would just like us to to get back in touch about this idea of being a music educator, which means that you are coming at what we do more holistically and thinking about the whole piece and working with the whole human and making connections between the music and the children or the people, however old they may be. It's not about us, the teacher. It needs to be about the students and helping them to to have the richest experiences possible. I would love to see that that from our profession to take on more of that mindset. And I'm, I'm working as hard as I can to try and promote that conversation. And I'm working with some really wonderful people that are doing the same. And I, I just hope that those sorts of ripples kind of continue to go forward, especially as these developing generations of music teachers come up through, mm -hmm. through the world that we live in right now. And I, it's going to change, change yeah. how we think about it. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's important to keep in mind that the education profession is a service Right. And we get this, we get this idea of sometimes people, and then the, the idea of being polished, like being the perfect conductor, being the perfect performer. And, and then we get into the mindset of me, 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 when, you know, it is a service. You don't face the audience when you conduct an ensemble, you face the kids. This is about them. They're facing the audience. So I feel like I, more people had that in mind, you know, I know for me, like, I would love to see an ACDA national conference with, like, a real middle school choir. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not, not a polished, um, auditioned, 
traveling children's choir where, you yes. know, I, I would love to see like a real authentic, honest to God, middle school choir where you, it, where their sound sounds a little bit like buckshot. Like there's a pitch in there, but like, you know, you've got, you know, at least it's a halo of sounds around that pitch because they're all trying <laughs> to center on it. Like, I just feel like there's just so much show and not a lot of this like genuine sort of things. I would love to see us, you know, welcoming a special needs choir like I too from Nebraska or yes. my own voice and and not having it just because we're having a special hour featured of special needs choirs. But like just like having yeah. more realism and realistic more realism in what we do. I would I would really love to see those sorts of things kind of moving in. Yeah, I, I hope that happens as well. I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and, and telling your story. I think we we got a lot of we got a, a lot of issues out there, and we also <laughs> we also talked about some really really great and positive things that I feel like a lot of educators can start to do with their own students. And I feel like you gave a lot of really great advice about changing voice and everything. But you know, you're an expert in it because you write books and stuff. So they, everybody <laughs> should go check out Dr. Sweet's books because they're amazing. Well, thanks, Cassidy. <laughs> I appreciate the invitation, and it's lovely to make more connections with you too. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.